Welcome back, my spooky babes. How are you guys? It's Peyton. Um, I'm doing well, still pregnant, which is good. I just need him to hold off one more week. Um, my in-laws come in next Wednesday. So I'm recording this on Tuesday the 28th because I had my whole week planned out of like research I was going to get done so then that way I can record a couple episodes that'll lead us out to the end of the month so I don't have to worry about recording while my in-laws and my parents are here um but you guys still get episodes um but I had it all planned out that I was going to record today and then tomorrow I'm supposed to go with um well I have an OB appointment early early in the morning like my check-in time is 8.05 um but I was also supposed to um go tomorrow night on the first to this like coronation thing for Bailey I don't know um he's an AO which means aviation ordinance so when he was in Whidbey he used to like load sauna buoys and all that stuff while out here in Nevada he builds bombs and they have the AOs across America have these chapters so they're just groups, and all AOs can go to them, veteran, non-veteran, like active duty, reserves, all of them can go. Um, and one of Bailey's friends is the president, and the whole board voted Bailey as the chaplain, which is like, Bailey's Catholic, do not get me wrong. But it was weird to me, because like, we, we don't go to church like that. We, like for the chaplain title, which is basically like a pastor or a priest, um, we don't, he's not that he's not that so I don't know what his job title entails but I was supposed to go to that tomorrow to watch him like go through this whole ceremony thing but the president which is also Bailey's friend forgot to get like a bouncy house for the kids and like other things for kids so Paisley's just gonna get bored and there are other kids there um but I know she's just going to get bored no matter what because there's nothing to do. And I'm going to be the one chasing her around. And I will be 37 weeks pregnant on Thursday. I'm not doing all that. No, I'm not doing all that. So Paisley and I are now staying home tomorrow. But that gives me an opportunity tomorrow to maybe record an episode when I wasn't going to record it until this weekend because now I actually like have time and I won't have to rush around because it was also a potluck so I was going to have to make something now I don't have to do that uh, so yeah so that's that's where we're at um, other than that yeah my soy in-laws come in next Wednesday I'm very, really excited because they get in at 10 o'clock and the weather's supposed to be good, and Bailey has the whole day off. So we get to, we live about an hour away from Reno in this, like, really small town where there's not much. Like, our Walmart has a grocery part, but it's still small. Um, And then Bailey, so we're going to go to Reno. We're going to pick him up. I think we're going to have lunch, or at least go to the mall, and then have lunch at the mall because there's the Cheesecake Factory. But I'm going to hit up the mall because I need to go to Bed Bath or Bath and Body Works because I need to get new candles. 
And then we're going to go to um, Target for the Targets and Sparks, which is like literally 15 minutes away from Reno, but on the way home. So it's a pit stop, and TJ Maxx is right by it. So we're going to go into TJ Maxx, and then they have a Raisin Cane's. I love Raisin Cane's, and I love Raisin Cane sauce. So we're going to pick some up there because I deserve it. And that's pretty much it. So... I know you're probably like, Peyton, we're almost five minutes in and you've only talked about yourself, but this is my podcast and if I want to catch you guys up on my life, then I will. If you don't like it, skip ahead. Was that mean? Oh well. Um, today, I'm going to warn you that we are, this might be a long episode, I don't know exactly how long, it might be a two-parter, uh, but I'm going all the trigger warnings, just all of them, just all of them. So we are talking today about Rodney Hicks. He was born in Etna, Maine on April 17th, 1951, making him an Aries. And if you know anything about Aries, this makes sense. This will all make sense. So his dad ended up leaving him and his family when he was a kid. Um, his mom had to raise him by herself, which she struggled with because he had six siblings. In high school, James was well-liked. He was described as, an, as athletic and handsome. He was on the cross-country team where he was just a star. Um, his brother Sheldon ended up dying in the Vietnam War, um, which Sheldon dying caused James to people would describe him as being cold and he just kind of shut down all of his emotions he didn't show anything but I like before you find out everything that this man did you're kind of like well grief hits everybody differently like if my brother died in a war I probably would get cold but people said that he was still a charmer which ended up making him create like manipulate people and women and he ended up meeting Jenny uh well Jenny Sear um in high school now she was a freshman and he was a senior they had met on the school bus they had started dating pretty much right after meeting on the school bus um Jenny was born uh, Jenny Sear, like I said, February 6th, 1954, making her an Aquarius. She was originally born in Danbury, Connecticut. Her parents are Mor- Moran and Adrian Sear. She had three siblings, Bruce, Dennis, and Roger, or Denise and Roger, my bad. Those are not in order of age. When she was younger, her and her family ended up moving to Edna, Maine, which is where James is from. And within a year of Jenny and uh, James meeting, she got pregnant with baby number one, who I'm going to call V, just because the kids don't really seem to want anything to do with their dad, which makes sense. I'm sure you can find, because I did on one like one place I'm sure you could find their kids names but for respect and privacy I'm just not gonna do it um this was in 1971 Jenny was only 16 
So James finished high school. He moved into Jenny's parents' house because they wanted to help out with the baby. James ended up proposing, and she said yes. And then she dropped out of high school. James finished high school. In 1973, or 1972, baby V was born. And at this point, their marriage was really rocky, rough, tough, all of it, because James cheated on Jenny all the time, all the time. He worked at a construction company, and in 1974, Jenny and him actually filed for divorce because he hit on Denise, her little sister, and had a skew of affairs after that, a ton of them. So... In the middle of the divorce, though, they found out that they were pregnant for a second time, and we're going to call him R, baby R. Now, they were separated when she got pregnant, but you know, adults do what adults do, and that happened. So when she found out she was pregnant, they decided to try to work things out. So they moved out of Jenny's parents' house, and they ended up getting a trailer and they had it parked at T&M Trailer Park. James ended up getting a job at another construction company, which was two and a half hours away. So he had to commute every day. But instead of, so I should say this, instead of what a lot of people did was stay on the construction grounds and then come home on the weekends, he would just commute the two and a half hours, so five hours a day, um, so he could be with his family because he said he wanted to see his kids in my personal opinion, I think he just wanted control. And I think you guys will agree with me when we talk more about what he did. <sighs> um, so he commuted every day, like I said. Um, Jenny, though, she wanted to help contribute to the household. Like, she wanted to pay bills. She wanted to be able to buy groceries. She wanted to be able to buy the kids things that they wanted when they asked. So she got a job in the kitchen at a nursing home. She didn't have... Because she dropped out of high school. She didn't have any license to be a nurse. Um, so her first start was working in the cafeteria. So when she became a cook at the nursing home, she decided that she did want to go back to school. And she ended up going back to school to become a CNA. On the side, though, she was a hustler. Okay, homegirl baked and decorated cakes on the side for, like, friends, families, family friends friends family friends type of deal um and by everyone who talked about jenny who has talked about jenny they said she is an amazing mom just a great great mom always there for her kids loved them to pieces and i just want to let you know right now i love my kids okay if anything is to happen to me ever and they're like oh she's missing she's just she couldn't handle mom life no that is not it if i am missing or dead it's not by my doing just a forewarning this way everybody knows so her next door neighbor named linda offered to help out with babysitting and she had children around jenny's kids age so She'd babysit for her while she was at, while Jenny was at work, and this ended up getting Jenny really, really close to Linda. So close that Jenny would talk to Linda about her marriage problems with Jimmy, and 
she said that well with james he went by jimmy i'll probably go back and forth on what i call him um but that her and james's marriage was extremely rocky extremely tough they were always fighting uh and so a lot of the information that i got i actually listened to podcasts about these so i listened to the morbid episode and then i also listened to or i read because it was um murder she wrote and she has a podcast but then i found a transcribed version of hers um to compare so i like compared hers while i was listening to morbid and um they talked a lot about how like i thought the morbid girls did a great thing of pointing out people would also say that they didn't think that James and Jenny's marriage was rocky because it's they sounded like normal fights. So sometimes you have to be like, okay, well, one person said this and one person said that. Like, one person said it's a normal fight and the other person said it's not. Like, everybody has their differences about what a normal argument looks like by the way, like, they were raised and what they've seen. So keep that in mind for, like, future things. Uh, so they ended up having a 15-year-old named Susan move in. Well, so a 15-year-old Susan moved in next door originally. She had a boyfriend. His name was Dwight. He lived next door. He knew James from high school. And, when, and Susan was his girlfriend, which Susan was 15. And if he knew Dwight in high school, that means that, like, he had to be at least in his 20s, which is disgusting. Um, but he off she offered to help babysit Jenny's kids, and instead of them paying her, they would allow her to move into their trailer and then pay for her groceries and things like that. So she got room, she got board and food for in exchange for babysitting. But one time when Jenny was not home, Susan was attacked by James. Um, he burned her neck with a cigar and then he tried to rape her, but she got away and homegirl told everyone about it, told Jenny, told like everybody in the neighborhood did not keep quiet about it at all, which good for her. But, um, that ended up causing Jenny to kick James out on July 17th. 1977 which was the day after that it, like the attack happened so then um on july 18th 1977 so two days after the attack happened jenny took her kids to go see their aunt denise and you know denise was like hey are you still able to take me to my doctor's appointment tomorrow and jenny was like yes girl yes i can and then baby v was like mom can i stay the night at aunt denise's and Jenny was like, yeah, and I'll just grab you tomorrow when I take her to her doctor's appointment. And so baby V stayed with Aunt Denise, and then baby R went back home with Janine. So then that day, she went home. She was supposed to be making a cake for Linda's nephew and decorating it and things like that, like getting it all spruced up. And she asked Linda if she wanted to come over and hang out. And Linda was like, oh, I can't. Uh, because she had something else going on, you know, adult life. And 
she was like, cool, fine by me. Well, then later that night, Susan goes out on a date. She came home around like 11 p.m. And she said only Jenny had talked to Susan. Or this is... James had said that Susan was out on a date. She came home around 11 p.m. and only Jenny talked to Susan. And James had told people the only reason why that he didn't talk to Susan was because he was mad at Susan for lying about the attack. Then James said he woke up the next morning. Baby R and Jenny were still sleeping in their bed. So this is July 19th. And then Susan wakes up, though, because she hears baby R crying at his mom's door and so she like thought that was weird because normally Jenny you know tells her like hey girl I'm going to work like please wake up to take care of the kid and she'll get up to take care of baby R well she noticed that her Jenny's purse was there keys glasses but Jenny wasn't there and so she thought that was weird, but she gets up anyway. She takes care of baby R. Like, maybe she was running late and forgot to say anything. Um, James comes home, and Susan's like, hey, have you heard from Jenny? And he's like, no, I haven't heard from her all day. And she goes, well, she's been, like, I haven't heard her talk to her all day, and her stuff's here. So James then goes to Linda's and is like, hey, Linda have you seen my wife? And she's like, no, I haven't seen her all day. And she was supposed to bring me a cake. And so then James went, went to Denise's house because she was supposed to take Denise to an appointment that day. And Denise was like, no, but I've been worried because she left baby V here, was supposed to pick me up this morning for my appointment, and she never showed, which is unlike her. Like, she... Whether or not she had an appointment to take Denise to, she wouldn't have just left her kid there all day long without communication. So then James decided to go to Jenny's parents and see if they'd seen their daughter, and they told her told him that they hadn't. So James came home and told Susan that he was going to be taking baby R and baby V to his parents' house, and then he was going to go out looking for Jenny. So him and his brother, George, went out looking for her for like a couple of hours and they came back and they said that the trailer lights were on and the purse and her glasses were gone. So parents and Linda and, you know, all these people are worried about her. So they all, including Jenny, report her missing. And then Jim says something a little weird. James ended up telling um, the sheriffs that she ran away with a truck driver but her whole family was like that didn't happen because she wouldn't have left her kids and he was like no no it was a truck driver I know she left me for one like blah 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 and they her parents were really trying to get the police to understand that like hey our daughter would not do that um, and then four days later he had a rash on his arm from poison ivy that he said he got from a job site but when cops questioned his boss the boss was like absolutely no way we there's no we don't work anywhere near poison ivy 
So one week later, Ginny is still missing. And James tells police that he was outside the Gateway Bar and he saw her with another man. He was with George and he said that they both talked to her. And she said she was moving to Florida, that this was her, the guy she was with was her new boyfriend, that he was a truck driver, and he, she asked how the kids were, but James said he, she didn't offer to take them, and then said she had called. And this never happened. Had to take a break because Paisley ended up not napping like I thought she was going to. So I had to wait for Bailey to come home and then like do it during bedtime. So, and if it sounds different and it's bad, let me know. Cause I'm doing this downstairs in our laundry room since he's upstairs live streaming. That's what he's doing. So let me know how well, sorry you heard that. I moved my mic closer. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Okay, so. At this point, the community has realized that James Hicks is probably lying and he knows exactly what happened to his wife, Ginny, but no one is listening. Cops are not listening. No one's listening. So, they went to the nursing home. Well, James went to the nursing home because he wanted Ginny's last paycheck. And because she was not dead... She was at that point just a missing person. Um, they want to release her check to him. And he got so mad. He was like yelling at them, demanding it. And they were just like, no, dude, we, we, we just can't. Um, and his parents called him out just bluntly and asked him, like, where is Ginny? And he's like, Florida. She lives there. And they called him a liar. And then he's like, yep. She's in New Hampshire. Like, what? And they told him that they thought that he killed her and that he buried the body. And his response to her grieving parents were, you'll never be able to prove that. Um, when it comes to their children, Jenny's children and his children, his kids, he won't allow Jenny's family or parents to see them. And so his parents, her parents decided to take out ads in the newspaper. They hired a private detective and they even wrote to the secretary of Maine, just trying to get people to listen. And the cops continued to believe James over Jenny and her Jenny's family. And they, they also thought that she just ran off with, you know, a truck driver and left her kids, but there's no evidence to support that that happened. So now, five years have passed, and he has married multiple women. Multiple. But, not only have five years passed and he's married multiple women, five years have passed and another woman from the Gateway Bar went missing. Which, that started up a whole new investigation, which also had all new cops. Gerilyn Towers was born on December 2nd, 1947. She was raised in Maine. She was also one of six kids. She was a single mom of three. Her mom and stepdad ended up living with her, June and Miller Tibbetts. Uh, they said that she loved being outdoors and bowling and doing anything with her kids. On October 16th, 1982, she had gone to the Gateway Bar. 
and her stepdad Miller had dropped her off and he had planned on picking her up because you know she was going to be drinking so he had waited up for her to like give him a call when she was ready to be picked up and she never called and he so he went to bed but he stayed awake and he had heard a car pull in and assumed that Geraldine had just gotten a ride home that's what I would have believed but the next morning June's oldest son who was 13 woke June and Miller up did I say June's son I meant Geraldine's son who was 13 woke up June and Miller mom and stepdad um the next morning telling them that she wasn't home which was not like her because she was just like Jenny. She was not going to leave her kids. That's number one. And number two, she had um, something wrong with her liver. So she had to take liver medication and she did not have that with her. If you hear that's rowing, it's the wind. The wind's been so bad today. Um, On October 18th, her mom reported her missing and also took an ad out for her in the paper. The weird part was that Nathan Smalls answered the ad which you might be like that that how's that weird well he was a psychic and he told june that Geraldine's body was in a river in bingham maine but police couldn't find anyone that could say they saw her after her dad her stepdad dropped her off so june and miller are obviously very worried now that a psychic has called and said that they thought that he believes she's in this river but nathan does one more big step he then goes to the police he calls them and he spoke to an officer ricker and a corporal eugene robinson which they are both leads on Geraldine's case and he told them exactly what he told Geraldine's parents he said that he was positive it was true and so police actually used resources and looked in that river for Geraldine. And she wasn't there. But now we're going to get real leads from the bar. So an anonymous man or anonymous person. I actually don't know if it was man or not. But an anonymous person named Garrett uh, said a gay. Whoa, what is happening? Said a man named. I almost said a gamed man. A man named Gary Hicks was with Geraldine that night at the bar. And she went to the bar to ask and no, like the police went to the bar to ask and no one knew Gary Hicks. And you might be like, who the heck is Gary Hicks? We've not even mentioned, we we mentioned a George, you know, there's James, but no Gary. Well, when they got to the bar and they were asking around, a guy was, who introduced him, introduced himself to the police as Jimmy Hicks, which this set off, you know, all those detective sleuthing alarms because they realized that the man, the other anonymous person, must have mixed up Gary and Jimmy. So they asked James if he knew Geraldine or had been at the bar the night she had disappeared, and he said no to both. But police didn't think he was involved with anything. However, like at that point, they were like, okay, well, cool beans, whatever. But then the bartender who was working that night that Geraldine went missing told the detectives that she served James 
and that he came in at 10 p.m. and he spent the whole night talking to Geraldine. Then, detectives were also told that James had just gotten his exhaust fix. And you might be like, Peyton, why does that have to do with anything? Well, the reason why Miller, Geraldine's stepdad, heard a car so well was because he said the exhaust was really loud. And then he just got, James just got Geraldine, you know, just got his exhaust fixed. Other people said they saw James's car on Geraldine's road the night she went missing. Police, or people also said they saw Geraldine and James leaving at the same time. So at this time, you know, Officer James Ricker and Corporal Eugene Robinson are like, okay, well, let's go to his house and talk to him. Like, maybe that'll throw him off. Which it did because it didn't give James enough time to think about things. So, you know, the they didn't know where he lived, though. They couldn't find anything about where he lived, nothing like that. They're new to the case, so they didn't even know about Ginny missing and Ginny's family. But they went to the post office and the postmaster gave them James's address. And he even said that James was weird, that everybody in town knew he killed his wife, but it hadn't been proven and that everyone was scared of him. And now Ricker and Robinson are really freaking confused because they're new to they're new to the police station. They don't, they weren't on Jenny's case. They don't know. Like, they transferred there. So, they didn't even know James had been married previously and that his wife had been missing. So, they went to interview him. And they asked if they could question him in the police car. But this is when James started acting all squirrely and flighty and, like, really panicked. So, they offered him to ask questions in his house because at this point, he's sweating, he's shaking, and he almost passes out. So, you know, Ricker said he immediately knew at this point that James did it. He did something. So, when they got into the house, James went and grabbed a glass of water and he almost spilt it. Like, that's how nervous and shaky he was. And when they asked him, like, hey, were you at the bar with Geraldine that night? He said he might have been at the Gateway Bar the night Geraldine went missing, but he was not, like, with her. He may have talked to her, but they didn't leave together, but they left at the same time. And then he started going on about Ginny. Like, he brought up that Ginny was missing, but that she sends Christmas gifts to the kids and has even talked to her parents, which... They're really confused about why he's talking about Jenny because they hadn't even brought her up in this situation. Now, police did tell him, Ricker and uh, Robinson, did tell him that they had witnesses who saw and heard his car the night going on Geraldine's road, the night she went missing, and they also knew that he had gotten his exhaust fix. And James basically said... Like, Ricker basically said that James had this, like, oh my gosh, you caught me face. Um, he, like, went extremely pale and quiet. But then his new girlfriend, Linda, comes home and it's her house and she tells them to get out. She tells the police to get out. And Ricker said that, like, 
Bricker and Robinson said if she had not walked in, they would have gotten him right then and there. But she ruined it, essentially. So, they, you know, at this point, they're like, we got to go through his past. We have to figure out why Jenny is missing, all sorts of things. So, they started going through his past. They started talking with Jenny's family. Ten, when they called and they said they wanted to talk, ten family members showed up to Jenny's parents' home just to talk about her. And they all just cried and kept thanking Robinson and Ricker for, like, just believing in them and allowing them to tell them what's been going on. And they explained to him, them that they knew that he had killed her and that, you know, they don't get to see their grandchildren anymore and that it's not like Jenny to just run off. Like, she would not have gone with this trucker. So they knew that he was lying about that. And then they even said that when they had brought it up and how they brought all, like brought up the fact that she was missing, how they knew he had something to do with it, and it was all because he tried to sexually assault Susan, they told the detectives how he had said, well, you'd never be able to prove it. And that's also when Detective Ricker found out that at what point, trigger warning, because animal abuse uh, and death, James ran over a dog that he had given to someone. Like, he pulled up to this person's house, was giving away this dog, gave it to him, and as he was leaving, ran over it on purpose. And Jenny's family told the detectives that at one point he bragged to them about the fact that he killed a cat one time. This is also when they found out that he beat her and he had once beaten her so bad she had to go to the hospital. Detectives were shocked and he, Detective Ricker just kept asking Jenny's original missing, for Jenny's original missing persons report. And the people he was asking kept saying, okay, but then he realized when he kept receiving nothing that they never filed it, which is just shitty police work, in my personal humble opinion. So now Detective Ricker needed to solve what happened to Jenny before he could Geraldine because he did know that the two were connected. So he went to Jenny's old trailer park and he talked to a neighbor named Trudy. And Trudy said that she when James lived there, she used to be so scared of James and she could not talk to the original investigators because that's how terrified of him she was. So she ended up being able to talk now and willing to because he didn't live there anymore and he wouldn't know. And Trudy told the detectives about how she saw bruises and black eyes and whenever she asked Jenny, she would never tell her where they came from. Now, on July 18th, the night before Jenny went missing, Trudy heard them fighting. She heard banging. She heard someone yelling, stop, stop, you're going to kill me. And then it was silent. And then she thought she heard wood being chopped in the back of James's trailer. Trudy had also brought up the fact that James had tried to attack Susan. So Trudy, like they went, so after they got done talking to Trudy, they talked to other neighbors and said they and their kids heard screaming that night but had no idea what to do and nor idea like what it was. And I think this has to go with what Ash and Elena said on Morbid, um, which I talk about them like we're best friends and I know they don't know who I am. I know they don't even know my podcast, but in my head we're best friends. Um, So 
anyway, I think that's what, when they brought up the fact that some people may have just assumed that someone would call 911 and then they didn't. Um, but also, some to some people, it's arguing, and to some people, that's just normal, everyday talking. Like, it's hard to distinguish between people what yelling and arguing is. So now, detectives have decided they're going to start looking for Susan because they need to know what happened that night when she came home from her date. So when they did find her, she was living in Massachusetts, and she told a lot of similar things that Trudy did. She mentioned that they fought a lot, that Jenny was like her mom, and she wouldn't have left her kids, like her, if she wouldn't have left Susan, she was going to leave her biological kids with James. So this is the story, well, not, I shouldn't say story. This is Susan's account of that night. So she did agree with James. She had a date that night, but James had said she got back at 11 11 p.m. And he had said that that's because that was her curfew. But Susan had told police that she got home at 4 a.m. She told Ricker and Robinson, listen, I got home at 4 a.m. And she said that Jenny was wearing this blue robe and she was sitting really weird, like laying with her head sort of in a misway shape. Um, And she said that Jenny never spoke to her, but that, you know, James did. And in court, he had said that Jenny was sleeping and maintained in court that uh, Susan got, Susan got home at 11 p.m. So then Susan said that that night James had talked to her to say Jenny was sleeping and it creeped Susan out the way that Jenny was sleeping. Susan then heard slippers scuffing on the floor and the trailer door opening and then closing. But she was so afraid of James that she just hid under the covers until she fell asleep. She said that the next morning she got up with baby R and she because she woke up to him crying at Jenny's bedroom door. She knew something was wrong because, you know, like I had said earlier, she always tells Jenny always told Susan when she was leaving for work and no one was home. And Susan found both of Jenny's glasses. She had two pairs, found both of Jenny's glasses. Uh And then that all her clothes were at the house besides the blue bathrobe. And this is the verbal testimony Susan would later later give in court. And her testimony then led to Detective Ricker and Robinson being able to have enough evidence, well, enough circumstantial evidence to indict James. Now, Fern Godso was an ex-girlfriend of James. And she and them, her and James started dating Um, immediately after Jenny went missing. He ended up getting rid of the trailer. She helped him move things out of the house. And she told the detectives that the mattress they had had a huge blood stain on it. And she had no good answer on why it was like that. Because James didn't give her a good answer when she asked. And she said that he was aggressive with her. And during sex, like even during sex, and even while she was pregnant... So now they're going to look into Jenny's case more. And the Attorney General and Maine State Police looked into how it was originally handled. And they were shocked with how many cracks and how much, like, like, I don't even want to say how much they didn't do. Like, how 
how yeah how much they didn't do it was so bad when they looked at it that they officially reopened the case while also trying to solve Geraldine's case detective ricker you know was the lead and jenny's family at this point got so excited and they were so relieved because they knew ricker and robinson were actually going to listen to them and that's what they needed so now the investigation starts they have nothing they have no bodies they have no blood and they have no physical evidence and Geraldine's case for james was basically nothing besides being at the bar at the same time leaving at the same time the exhaust and then James getting a new one. Nothing was concrete at all. So as the, as the investigation goes on, the state 100% believes that they had enough with what Susan said to start the trial for Jenny's murder. And this is actually a huge deal because this is the first murder case in Maine to ever go to trial where there was no body um and there was no not even evidence that she was in florida or new hampshire so the trial starts and ferdinand r la rochelle was the chief of the criminal division of the attorney general's office and he was the lead prosecutor they had a grand jury like meeting set up on october 4th 1983 and the grand jury agreed that James Hicks likely caused the murder slash disappearance of Jenny Hicks in July of 1977. He was immediately arrested and the trial began March 1984. So they brought in neighbors to testify. And this is when some of them were like, yeah, they were yelling. I heard yelling. I always heard yelling. And others were like, they just kind of sounded like normal married couples. Like that's that's how me and my wife argue that's how me and my husband argue so that that was kind of back and forth you know because there's no good say but the prosecution had a number one witness and that was our girl susan she said everything that she had told police that they had been arguing before she even went on her date she came home james was watching tv jenny was sleeping on the couch talked about how she was nervous because Ginny was positioned weird and Ginny always talked to her and this time Ginny didn't talk to her. Um, and she talked about how she went to bed and heard the dragging. She woke up the next morning and Ginny was gone with the blue bathrobe, but her glasses and purse was still there. So now the defense attorney, J. Hillary Billings, said, you know, but Susan came home at 11 p.m. She didn't come home at 4 a.m. And James was like, he didn't talk to her because she, you know, lied. And Ginny and Susan went and talked and then they all went to bed. That's what James said on the stand. That's what his attorney had said. The defense's number one claim was that Ginny was not satisfied with her life. That the kids, her two babies, that everyone said she adored. This attorney said that they were two, unto, two unwanted pregnancies that James lived with Linda Marquis since Jenny left. Now, Linda was the one who was like, get out to Ricker and um, Robinson. And, you know, he had two children with Linda. He, she took care, she had two kids with a previous marriage that he took in and that she was taking care of his kids and that he was just a family man. 
J. Hillary Billings said, and I quote, the fundamental point of this case is simply whether you will be able to find it in yourselves to convict someone of murder if you don't even know if a death occurred. There's no solid evidence that a death occurred. Now, after nine hours of deliberation on March 22nd, 1984, the jury came back guilty for fourth-degree manslaughter, well, fourth-degree murder, which now would be manslaughter. Um, They said it was a crime of passion because there was no murder weapon, there was no body, but testimony led them to believe that he had killed her, but he had not planned to kill her. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and he said, in quotes, I'm not guilty, but someday it will be proven. I will accept what the court gives me. And that is where I'm going to end today because we are 45 minutes in. I know it's really only 40 minutes because I talked for a little bit in the beginning. Um, But we're 45 minutes in and there's a whole second part that is almost just as long of notes as I had with this first part. So we're just gonna, yeah, we're just gonna let it be because there is more murder. Um... It's a lot of fun. It's not. It's not fun. So we're going to do a part two, but I'm not going to make you guys wait. I'm going to record it probably tomorrow, hopefully when Paisley naps, if she does nap, um, because I'm home. So I will probably record it tomorrow, which is Wednesday the 1st. And so part one will be posted on Thursday, and then I'll probably post this one so you guys have it available for you on Friday. Um. Because then that way, if I can't record it tomorrow and I need to wait till Thursday when, or I mean tomorrow night or Thursday, I can and you guys are missing out on it. So that's where we're going to end. What do you guys think so far? Do you think she actually ran off with the trucker? Or do you think that James is guilty like the jury thought? You tell me. All right. Bye, spooky babes. Love you.